when a member of the Marine Corps who has served in combat many, many times tells you to read a disclaimer, you read it. So here's me reading it. The views presented here are those of Jeremy Kofsky and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, or the Marine Corps. All right, so Jeremy, I did it. Please don't come after me. Not with AI, not with Fists of Fury, or anything else. Okay, you now know, obviously, that I've talked to Jeremy Kofsky. He is a member of the Marine Corps. He works with AI in the Marine Corps in a variety of contexts, does very interesting work. And I wanted to talk to him, of course, about what are the kinds of use cases that we're seeing in the military and how is the military addressing the ethical concerns that relate to AI in a military context. We're talking about, obviously, extremely high stakes. You'll see that when I start off, I ask him, you know, where is it being used or where will it be used? And he said the more appropriate question is, where won't it be used? So that should make us, I think, nervous. Not, not objecting, but just nervous that, oh, wow, this is the military, this is warfare. When are we going to use AI? A lot, apparently, and how are we going to do it safely is a really difficult question. And there are lots of questions that we talk about. So, for instance, there's questions about when should a human be in the loop? So there's AIs doing the thing that they do, and then they have an output. To what extent should that output of the AI be automatically connected to action versus having a human between the output of the AI and the ultimate impact? Are there cases in which that's just not possible because of the speed at which the enemy is operating? How do you vet for things generally? How accurate does the AI have to be? I mean, if it says something like, this is 75% likelihood that this is the right person, this is the person that we're going after, is that high enough? Probably not. 99%? Excellent. Not always feasible, though. So in what contexts is a higher or lower uh, confidence rate by the AI appropriate? It's a really tough question. And what Jeremy emphasizes in a number of places is that there's not going to be very clear policy on exactly how AI is going to get used, exactly what the benchmarks are, exactly what risks are worth it, and so on and so forth. It's always going to lie on the shoulders of the commanders who have to make those calls. And according to Jeremy, thankfully, they receive a lot of training around ethics and what's ethically appropriate and inappropriate in a warfare context. So very, very complicated stuff. There's nothing particularly philosophically complicated in what we've talked about, so I'm not going to clarify any of those kinds of points, but I think you'll find it really interesting to hear the ways in which AI is getting used, the way in which it will be used, and the ways in which individual commanders and soldiers are ultimately responsible. Finally, a bit of housekeeping. As always, if you have anything to say to me, you want to recommend a guest or a topic, email me, em at readblackman.com. That's em, as in ethical machines, at readblackman.com. And also, please leave a review, give it five stars, share it with your friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's go talk to the person who can't be angry with me because I read the disclaimer. So, Jeremy, you are an expert on, I think, think it's fair to say, the military, or at least the Marines, and you yes. work in AI. And you've actually been in combat, from what I gather, which say for what you told me, a bunch of times. So I, I'd love to hear, just first, before we get into sort of any deep ethical issues, talk to me about the ways that AI is or it will soon be playing a role in combat. Sure. I think the biggest way to answer is like, where won't it be? 
I think anything that you can do to make a process faster, more efficient is something that we in the military and in my specific branch, the Marine Corps specifically, are looking at doing. And we talk about warfare a lot too, but also the general human resource processes. How do we get right people in the right place at the right time? How do we get those right people to move to the right combat zone with the right equipment, doing basically just-in-time logistics? Once they're in the combat zone with the right people and the right tools, how do we use them in the most efficient way possible to outthink, outspeed our enemy? That's the biggest thing in the Marine Corps is we're not as big as the other services. We don't have as much muscle as the other services. So we really rely on our human power and our manpower and brain power advantages. So anything we can do cognitively and physically faster than our enemy, we think gives us an advantage despite our usual lack of size against our enemies. So through that entire spectrum, we could be using automated processes. So that's interesting. So part of it is just sort of, you're a large organization, right? Even if you're not the largest you know, wing of the military, still it's a large organization. And so there's a way in which the kinds of issues you face are not radically dissimilar from, say, corporate issues having to do with how do we operate our organization in an efficient and effective manner. But let's focus it on the, the combat stuff and how sure. AI plays a role in combat or in warfare more generally such that you're able to act quicker, act more effectively, act more efficiently because you've got AI on board. Definitely. One of the biggest things that we do is obviously intelligence, right? And obviously there's only so much I can expound on that. Yeah. But we use very large swaths of information to get to very refined, detailed, what we call targeting packages, right? All the information that is out there that we have available to us through unclassified and or classified means how do you organize that? How, how do you get that down to a specific thing of this specific area, this specific person is a bad person, a bad thing, a bad actor. We need to immediately target either kinetically or uh, non-kinetically. What, sorry, um, what, is, what does that mean? What is, what's kinetic versus non-kinetic targeting? Sure. So kinetically would be uh, what most people think about like a UAV strike, for example, or a raid on a house, like a special forces team raiding a house to take down mm. a specific group. Non-kinetically is more of, hey, do we want to do something in the information space? Do we want to manipulate opinion? Do we want to do an effect, but not necessarily remove them from the battlefield with them not being no longer on this earth? So kinetic is just this, this euphemism for like blowing shit up. Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. I like that. Uh, okay. That's good. It's a, I wasn't being violent. I was being kinetic. That's, that's fine. Yeah. And so... I, guess, I suppose it sounds like you're saying something like AI helps you find the signal in the noise. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I, I look at it as kind of a funnel. And when I talk to people about this, I kind of say it's a funnel. So what does that most... mean? But give me an example. I know you can't give me an example, an example. Give me sure. the, the outlines of an example of, I don't know, some some kind of criminal or terrorist or like what is in broad strokes anyway, where's all the data coming from? What are the sources of data? At least, sure. you know, not, I want names. Yeah. No, not names, yeah. but, <laughs> and I get that AI is combing through all that data, all those data sets yeah. in order to find something. So I guess one question is, what are all these sources and outline? And two, do you have a, a sense of how the AI filters this stuff in a way that maybe humans either can't do it or it can do it faster than humans? Right. Well, I think to answer the second part of that question, we'll answer the first part. Uh, so what AI and ML can do is it can do keywords. It can do general trends in, in an area that says, hey, these are indicators of something that is bad in this area. And this kind of goes back to the early 2000s, uh, what we call the global war on terrorism, you know, the Iraq, Afghanistan thing, when we were looking for 
very specific people in very specific area to take out, as opposed to now with uh, Russia and Ukraine, where, hey, we're looking for units to go after. Mm. So coming through all of this data, you have all this open source data, you have, you know, all your social media videos out there. There's no zero way a human can look down and look through all of that and make any kind of connections, sure. much less look through all the stuff. So if we have a photo of a guy, can we look at him through facial recognition and say, hey, he was on this video at this place. We can geolocate this video. Hey, that correlates to other information we may have in this guy at other classification levels. Hey, we think he's in this area. Okay, let's start refining that process, that targeting package. So AI is able to take that very large swath information and say, hey, look in this area for this guy. I can't say exactly where in that, this area this guy is, but I think he is in this area. Start looking there. And how do you vet that kind of thing, right? Because one of the worries is that AI makes predictions in a way that is unexplainable. We can't understand why it gave the output that it did, precisely for the reason that you articulated, which is that it's looking at so much data. It's crunching so many numbers. We can't possibly wrap our heads around all that math. So it gives some output like, look for the guy in this region. But how would you even begin to verify the plausibility of that recommendation? And I think that's one of the bigger issues going forward is looking at that black box. Like, is our black box going to be completely opaque or is it going to be translucent? Because once again, this is going towards the ultimate sanction, you know, the kinetic type stripes. Like, you don't get a chance to redo that once you've, you know, pressed that trigger, essentially. Sure. So you have to be certain that that target is the right target for the right reason in the right place. And that you're also looking at all your uh, laws of armed conflict, statutes and whatnot, make sure that's all legal and clear. So I think in this case, you have to be able to show your work. The computer has to be said, hey, I use this pose to do this thing, to do mm. this thing and lay it to here. Here's the brick spreadsheet. And now you have at least a level of fidelity. And then you as the human can go back and look at it. And that's one of the things that we're looking at is a human has to be involved in this decision at some point. Someone has to be responsible for saying this information is good. It can't be a machine talking to another machine, talking to another machine, which talks to a UAS that drops it by itself. And we're just kind of there. Right. So, yeah, the human in the loop thing is a major issue generally. When people talk about military situations and combat situations in particular, there's a heavy stress on the importance of a human in the loop because the thought I take it is supposed to be that you don't want to engage in kinetic activity if, you know, Automatically. You don't want, for instance, a drone shooting someone automatically, arguably. So the thought goes, right? So the, the thought is supposed to be something like, you don't want to just say, this is the suspect, give the drone, as it were, a picture of the suspect and say, when you see this person with the camera, shoot to kill. Right. The idea is supposed to be, no, no, no. For such a, a high stakes decision, an ethical decision to kill someone, you need a human in the loop to make sure, for instance, this is definitely the right person. Now, that seems totally plausible to me, but the thing that I don't understand, and maybe you can help me to understand it, is this just seems impossible at scale, or it seems impossible to do if your enemy doesn't have a human in the loop. So if you're engaged in various kinds of combat and the enemy is using certain kinds of AI or automated decision making, they don't have a human in the loop, they're going to go way faster than you. And then I take it, it seems to me like, you're just back to buckets to corner where you're going to have to move as fast as they do, even though they're moving in a sort of morally reckless way. It seems like unless you're going to lose, you're going to also have to move in a morally reckless way. It's just to say, oh, I shouldn't say that. I should say a way in which there's not a human in the loop for various highly significant decisions about, say, whether somebody lives or dies. Right. 
No, and, and I think that's a very important point to be making about this. And it's one of our core concepts that we've reached to in the Marine Corps when we're talking about the intelligence, robotics, and autonomous systems laws that we've established and recently in the last year is that either we have to win at machine speed or we're going to lose at machine speed mm. is verbatim from the thing. And, you know, the national defense strategy, which is our overriding national security policy that we have for the U.S. government and the Department of Defense, so specifically, you know, China being our main pacing thread, China is developing these systems as well. Yeah. They have the same more flexibility or same more dictums that we have. Yes, no, and different. But I think that definitely has to be something that has to be part of the calculus in this. Is us being morally, ethically right going to end up losing us a war because we can't move as fast as them because they are willing to accept more risk of bad strikes than we are? We're not going to loot, right? If you're the military... Your number one priority, and you're engaged in combat, your number one priority, I take it, is just don't lose. That's got... But if don't lose the number one priority, and the other side is using engaging in automated warfare, I just don't see how the military could do anything but engage in automated warfare if, you know, if they're going to maintain or achieve their number one priority. Right, and I think that's the big debate is, Okay, we say human in slash on the loop. What does that exactly mean, right? Like, like we talked earlier about a very small scale insurgency terrorism level thing at a massive scale peer or uh, near peer environment. Does that just mean, hey, I'm just every six hours, I'm going to look through the data and like, yep, hey, all these strikes look good. Hey, all these strikes look good. All these strikes will look good. What exactly does that human on slash in the loop actually look like? Mm -hmm. We haven't got to the point yet where we established policy, nor do I think there is going to be concrete guidance on what that looks like. I just think this is, hey, Sergeant Jones or Colonel Smith was the one who made the decision. Okay, well, what did that decision look like? Like, what was the actual processes behind that decision? They're going to move faster and faster and faster. It's in terms of can the equipment that we're using and the cognitive processes that we're using as humans to process that keep up. I think that's the big issue right now. So it's so interesting because, I mean, it sounds like the point you made is something like, look, ideally we have a human in the loop. We're not going to put a human in the loop in such a way that they undermine our objectives, our military objectives. Okay, I get that. And let's assume that the military objectives are all in the up and up. We're not engaged in an unjust war or something like that. Let's put, if you're engaged in unjust war, that, you know, everything's out the window. Um, right. But let's suppose that you're engaged in a just war or just enough or something along those lines. You're justified right. in engaging in the military objectives or you're justified in pursuing those military objectives. So the question is not whether a human should be in the loop. It's how should the human be in the loop? I think that was your point. Where do we put them in the loop or how do we make sure that they are somehow or other involved? But the way in which they're going to get involved is going to vary by use case because right. in some cases it's going to be completely implausible. And in some cases it will be plausible if you do it in such and such a way like you don't have a person reviewing every single kill, automated kill, but maybe you have a kind of backwards audit or something like that. Like, who was killed this past week? Let's review and let's do right. some sort of uh, audit of how well we've done and do some quality improvement on the AI or something along those lines. We'll monitor and, and continuously improve. That's yeah. the way in which you might have a human in the loop. Do I have that right yeah. so far? Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense in the way that you're articulating that. I think the other big point that in the military we have is... AI is supposed to augment us. It's not supposed to replace us. So there's a couple of companies I know out in Ukraine right now that have basically done computer vision studies of various 
Russian tanks, right? Russian mm. armored vehicles, right? And essentially a human says, hey, in this sector, the battle line, I want 40 lottery munitions, you know, that go one way and find something to blow up and they blow it up. And they scan for all of these different types of tanks or armored vehicles and like, okay, I see this tank that is a Russian, you know, tank T-82 or whatever you call it. It goes in attacks, it blows it up. Now, what happens if that's a rusty Hulk though and kids as they're wanting to do get on top of that, right? Mm -hmm. And the computer's not making that differentiation, but is there a possibility where the the, mach the machine scans, hey, this looks like a tank, but there's some other stuff on this. Can you verify this will be a good kill? Mm. Could be that. If, if it's completely clean, there's nothing near or nothing around it. Hey, I, I already know my, my baseline parameters go forth. And I have done that. So I have, I've had a human tell me to do the strike in this area because I know there's Russian activity or enemy activity in this area. And if there's problems or something that breaks from that programming they have, hey, human, can you give me the mm -hmm. type one for yes command to go continue my attack? Yeah. So that's a human in the loop at a very crucial juncture. That's not a backwards audit. That's in real yeah. time, yes or no kill. But what's interesting is that the AI is trained to know that uh, something like I might be in a, no, metaphorically, I might be in a gray area here. So I need human intervention, right? I don't know is if there's a kid here or not, or is this the kind of thing that I, that I can blow up, so to speak. Is that right? Right. Now, yeah. here's the thing, though. So one thing that one, one might get nervous about is the fact that the way in which the human in the loop, it varies by use case. But as you said, there is no policy and there probably won't be any policy. But then one has to worry, I would think, about broadly speaking, two kinds of things. Number one, a kind of consistency in how the military operates. Presumably you want a certain kind of, this is how we treat situations, you know, consistently across the board. You want a certain kind of consistency because that consistency presumably speaks to upholding certain standards. We consistently uphold our, for instance, ethical standards. That's one kind of broad, you know, one kind of concern. The other kind of concern I take it is something like it's related if it's not the same concern, which is aren't some people, if there's no policy, they're just going to make crazy decisions or let's just say unethical decisions, but they'll, they'll have done so. They are in breach of ethical requirements, I'm supposing, but they are not in breach of any kind of military policy. And so there's, there's no way to hold them accountable for the unethical decision. Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I would, I would disagree with that uh, significantly. Um, so Marines and U.S. Army members writ large, we all go through ethics training. And this is a cornerstone of any milestone we do in our career. Uh, we get ethics training and it's all based on essentially four core principles. We do not steal. We do not lie. We do not coerce. And especially number four, we do not kill innocent people. Mm. Th those are ethics that are taught and beat into us sometimes quite literally <laughs> during our, during our recruit training. And as you go through your career, be it an officer or in my case, an enlisted person. Also, before we go do any operation, we're always given two briefs, a law of armed conflict brief and a rules of engagement brief. So the law of armed conflict, otherwise known as the uh, Geneva Conventions brief, hey, this is what the general rules of the road or, or the rules we're going to play by in this war are. Rules of engagement are more AO specific of, hey, if a person sorry, does this, you, uh, uh, area of operations, I'm sorry. Yeah, just wherever you're working, basically, at that yep. point. Hey, if, if a guy does this, you're, you can do this in self-defense. Or, hey, this is what self-defense is considered like in this area. Mm. So... You, you have very good parameters throughout our career and out our history of ways that we're supposed to be doing good ethical conduct. 
And when we have fallen short of that, namely, in I think it was 2007 in Haditha, those people get prosecuted, right? So it's not just, hey, you can go off the reservation and do whatever you want. Th there are punishments to that. And they're quite severe in the case of the military. Hmm. So that's really interesting. So I take it then, you know, the, the fourth one, don't kill innocent people. It's got to be something more like don't intentionally kill innocent people or don't intend to kill innocent people. But it's I take it, it would be OK if it were uh, foreseen but unintended. Yeah, so I think no, that is okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, conflict stuff that's bad happens, right? I think we can both agree to that. Things that we don't want to happen or people who don't deserve the things to happen to them happens to them. One of the recent key examples, I think, is uh, if you remember uh, the Afghan withdrawal, where they had after the uh, Marines got attacked at the Abbey Gate, I think a day or two later, they uh, struck that uh, aid worker. And they went through the entire process and they did what you said. Hey, can we do an audit of this? We need to see what happened. Where was the bad ethical lapse that we made? And they went through the entire thing. And the White House on Class Report said, hey, we went through the entire thing from how we acquired the information about this person to how we tracked him to where we're watching him to what uh, he was doing at the time that we made the decision to strike. And they said, hey, even though he was an innocent person, we followed all the rules correctly in terms of how to get to that point. So if the process broke then, or is that just a anomaly in that process, right? I think that's the bigger issue that they're still looking at. So let me come back to this point where you said the AI is there to augment soldiers, people in the military, not to replace them. But why not replace? I mean, why not take, you know, one of these dogs from Boston Dynamics, strap a gun to them and put them in there instead of uh, a human life? It's more likely or plausibly more likely to achieve the military objective. If it gets destroyed, that's much worse than a human life being lost. So why isn't the sort of default goal, let's replace human soldiers with, you know, robots, whatever those look like? Sure. I think my biggest point to that would be, what is the objective? What is the aim of this robot dog to do? If it's, like I said, a conventional war, I could see accountability for that. If it's something in a insurgency or terrorism operation where people are your focus, is it better for me to go into a house and talk to someone and have all the cultural right. nuance I understand of an area or a robot dog which has cultural nuance that I've programmed into them? They don't understand anything and everything that they need to know to make an effective decision. Yeah. So I think they lose that human interaction of things that you would even think to code into the dog and teach the dog or code the dog new tricks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I see that. You want people on the ground if those people need to talk to other people and not just sort of engage in kin kinetic activities. But if it's just kinetic activity, if it's just violence, if it's just like, we got to blow shit up here, why not just sure. replace the, the human soldiers? Why not ha have, you know, if you like self-driving or at least remotely driven tanks? Right. And there's something saying you can't do that. I think if you still, once again, have that human who's making those decisions on them and not, hey, you need to swivel right 90 degrees, blow this up. I mean, hey, this is generally what I want to attack. You give me the optimized attack path and I will prove it and I will oversee that operation. Once again, for all the reasons you, you enumerated earlier about it's less casualties, it's less U.S. citizens or U.S. personnel getting hurt, all the better. But if there needs to be a, okay, we killed them enough, they're starting to surrender, what does that look like to a machine? What does that look like to a human or two different things, mm -hmm. right? So I think having a human oversee that operation, still you're augmenting what they're doing. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility either. Mm.
Is there a lot of AI training or something along those lines? I mean, you're talking, we're talking about having a human in the loop. Does it matter that it's AI versus just some other piece of computer software? Is there certain kinds of training that people in the military need to go through so that they can deploy AI safely? I think the training, to my mind, needs to be be better at your core job. And what I mean by that is like, so in my specific job that I used to do analysis, right? Well, analysis is a very multi-spectral thing, obviously. But if we break it down didactically, you know, it's four key points is I want to collect information. I want to be able to catalog it. I want to conduct analysis on it. And then I want to disseminate it out, right? I want to push it out. Three of those four things, the cataloging and the gathering of the information plus the dissemination, you can automate all those things. Sure. The, the analysis part is the thing that you would need to do as a human, right? So understanding how do I do analysis better and understand how do I need to do those audits you're talking about? Mm-hmm. I think that's the education piece that needs to go on. I think especially the new generation, they're a lot more comfortable with the uh, generative AI systems. A lot of the things are coming on every day. They use them in their day-to-day processes. They're used to them, just making sure that somehow we can get that data to them is the way to go forward. But I think they already have that inherent training. It's just being better at your specific military task. Talk to me a little bit about how generative AI is used in the military or potentially used in the military. I mean, I get automated systems. I get facial recognition recognition software. That makes a lot of sense. I get sifting through data and picking out, you know, what seem to be important correlations. But generative AI, I'm not sure what those use cases are. So what are they? Sure. So there's a couple of studies that have been done over at the Naval Postgraduate School on this. One of the ones they looked at was, hey, how do we get optimized uh, helicopter assaults, right? When you go into a mountain area, there's diff- different approach paths. There's different weather causal factors. There's a bunch of different factors that will affect an operation. So by inputting as much of this stuff in, as opposed to a human saying, hey, based on my experience, I believe it should be X, Y, Z, this machine can give you 100, 120 different choices and then you can filter from there based on your unique experience and then they're already pushed out one of the conferences i just got done speaking at there's a guy from uh, task force lima which is the uh, dod's new stood up task force on generative ai and he was writing about essentially a having an operations order which is that order that says hey go here do this thing this is how you're going to go this is how you're going to be logistically su- supplied essentially doing that in a classify military form of chat GPT, hmm. right? Once you have all the data, the large language models stood up, why can't this thing give me at least a 90% solution of what this looks like? And like, okay, well, that specific thing isn't going to work because of X, Y, and Z and my unique experiences and me being so, good at my job, being a tanker or whatever. Give me an example of what, what are the kinds of things, instead of X, Y, and Z, what are we filling in for X, Y, and Z? So... In terms of concepts of operation and operations orders, or if I want to go attack an island, we'll say, right? Do I want to parachute a platoon in there with certain weapons? Do I want to do a seaborne assault? Do I want to go do a combined seaborne or airborne assault on that island? And all those have good reasons to do and all those have bad reasons to do. Mm -hmm. Getting all those drawn out in complete detail saves a lot of time because you know the information that you're going to get essentially... But a lot of the time that it gets taken up in our planning process is literally just the core task of writing all these things out. So having a machine that can do this for you based on information that you've already inputted into it quickens that decision process for you, enables you to move faster. 
It sounds like it's helping with the deliberative process. Yes. I, I think it gives more ammunition to that deliberative process and you're able to get to that deliberative process faster because you don't have to think of all the minutia of each of those approaches. You can just have the debate about, hey, I think this will work or I think this won't work because of this reason or this reason. Hey, w w we can't parachute guys in because they have anti-air and the prevailing winds are too fast, right? Or the tide's not going to be right, so we can't do seaborne so or any one of these causal factors. Are you engaging in the deliberation about whether it should be an airborne or seaborne or hybrid attack with the LLM? If you want to, through prompt engineering, you could. If you're trying to get to a, hey, I only want one course of action. I want only want one plan. And you can say, hey, these are the three general plans I'm looking at. Which of these three do you prefer I give you more detail on? I see. Now, here's the thing, though. I guess one question is, how do you verify the accuracy of it? As we know, one of the big problems with large language models is that they, quote unquote, hallucinate, they output false information. And then, of course, it's, you know, what you don't want is relying on false information in high stakes situations. This is obviously high stakes. And now you potentially have false information. No? So why isn't, you know, there are some corporations who put a ban on LLMs for this reason. Why wouldn't the military or should the military do the same thing in light of the fact that we don't have a way of making sure that the LLMs don't output false information? Right. And and I think that's the key or uh, one of the key uh, discussion points now. And I always I, I liken it to 2001 in Space Odyssey, right? If this blinking red light is telling you this person, this area, this thing is bad, go forth and kill it. What is this 19, 20 year old who's actually making that decision? Are they to believe this blinking red machine that's been coded and vetted by scientists or their right. own human intuition? I think Stanford Prison Experiment will tell you they're going to default probably more to the blinking red light telling them to do this thing mm -hmm. because that's come from the place of authority and is speaking very authoritatively to them. So I so think that becomes the big ethical issue here. Right. So how are we supposed to do that? You know, this is part of the explainability issue, but, you know, there's this thing called automation bias, which is that people are just inclined to trust the outputs of computers and... I sort of feel like people are between a rock and a hard place. I've thought about this more in a, in a medical context than a military context where I think, you know, you've got this diagnosing LLM. It says, you know, the person has X, whatever X is, you know, cancer or whatever. The doctor says, no, it doesn't. No, sorry. No, they don't. The patient does not have cancer. I don't think that's the right diagnosis. And you could see them being in a, between a rock and a hard place where it's sort of where they say something like, you know, let's suppose that they defect from the AI because they don't understand it. And then they're going to get blamed for not following the AI, which has been trained so well and tested in so many circumstances, and you were defected from the AI, you didn't take its judgment, and the AI was right and you were wrong, how dare you? On the other hand, you take a case where a doctor says, I didn't think they had cancer, but the AI did, and the AI is so trained so well, blah, 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 so I defer to the AI, and now this person, you know, let's say is dead or whatever, then they're going to get blamed that way too. So they're, you know... <laughs> If they defer, they're going to get nailed. If they defy, they're going to get nailed. It just seems like they can't win. And now to your point, thinking about this sort of 19, 20-year-old soldier who's you know, asking the AI as a word what to do or what do you recommend, it feels like it's going to be the same kind of you know, dilemma. If I say, no, I'm going to overrule the AI because I think it's wrong and the person is wrong and the AI was right, they're in trouble. But if the AI says, go kill that person, and they're like, I didn't think that's the right call, but I did it anyway because the AI told me to, they're screwed there too. So right. how are you possibly supposed to use these things in high-stakes situations? I mean, what 
should we have a policy about always defer, always defy? It can't be always defy. Otherwise, what would be the point of it? What are we supposed to do in these kinds of situations? Yeah. And I think that's the unique part about the military. And when we were talking earlier about uh, who owns decisions, right? In the military, mm-hmm. the commander owns the decisions. We have the axiom, anything the unit does or fails to do is the fault of the commander. Anything good, anything bad is on him or her. So what is the better question would be, what is their policy on AI and what is their risk they're willing to accept in terms Mm. of utilizing the AI to craft targeting solutions, intelligence solutions, any kind of combat related solutions, orders, all that stuff. Each of them is going to have unique aspects the way they look at it. And that's just the way the military has been for generations about what is the level of risk a commander is willing to accept in a certain area based on his or her previously acquired knowledge. That's interesting. So there will be sort of use case specific policies. Like you're going to use the AI for this and the commander says, here are the rules of using the AI in this particular use case or in this particular situation. And if you defy those rules, that's a problem. If you live up to them, that's good. And we sort of this is not quite the right word, I know, but we're going to hope that commander, commander, is that the right word? Commanders, yeah. Yeah, the commander chooses the appropriate sort of policies about how it should be used. I guess my question, and, and I get that, 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 that makes a lot of sense, of course, because one, they've gone through the ethics training, as you've said, and two, you know, they, they want to get things right. So I guess the question is, what's the kind of oversight? that exists over those commanders and the decisions that they might make about how to appropriately or inappropriately use an AI? I think oversight is going to emanate from, one, what is the senior level policy? I know the White House is going to release their AI policy here, I think within the next week or so. Yeah. And I think from that will flow in DOD AI policy and then service-specific AI policy. And then each commander, I would assume as part of that, will have to have their own AI policy as well, probably coming out. I would assume mid to late next year, I would assume the way these things typically flow down. I th- as much of a cop-out as it kind of is, well, the, the person who adjudicates the commander's decision is that commander's commander, essentially. Hmm. As weird as that sounds. That's why, like going back to the Afghan Neo example, right? There was a commander on the ground of the Air Force. He had a commander over at Central Command, which is the, the regional command in charge of Afghanistan and the Middle East did the investigation and that journal has a boss over in the Pentagon and that boss has a boss up in the White House, right? So each of those levels adjudicate the person below them that, hey, did you do the right thing? And that's just kind of the way the military goes. That way, commanders feel emboldened to make decisions they have to at that critical juncture. And they're like, hey, as long as I can explain and properly articulate what I did and why I did it, I should be in the clear as long as I'm following general those general ethical dictates I got and more importantly, those law of armed conflict, legal left and rights that I have. And in, in that case, even though it was, it turned out to be killing the, a wrong person, they had done everything right up to that point, basically. It was just essentially bad information or bad interpretation of that information that led to that incident. Mm. Could you could you give an example of something like where you saw use or re- there was going to be use of an AI, but there were no guardrails in place? And then what guardrails have since been wheeled in to to stop that kind of thing from happening? So my last deployment, uh, we were looking at utilizing this for some of our analysis tools. And I think this gets back to an earlier point you're making is what is the education on this needle like? Because I'm briefing up my boss, who is the senior officer for the entire task force for this thing. And I say, and I kind of give him the same definition. Hey, hey sir, your analysis, this is this. This is what it looked like. This is how this is going to help us. And he, and he just stares at me. He's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> okay. and, 
and, and and this guy is not a not an idiot. He's not dumb by any means. He, he is a two star general in charge of thirty thousand Culverson forces. He probably has three different master's degrees. The guy is not dumb. Sure, it's just trying to explain to him, hey, sir, this is what we're wanting you to do. This is the risk we want you to assume. Having him understand that risk inherent to him. Once we were able to break that down to him a little bit finer detail, he, he had no problem with it. He wanted to do it. Actually, his command project major, his senior enlisted advisor, was the one who kind of really brought him on board with it. So going from there is now I have to actually do this. So, okay, well, what is the level of risk he is willing to accept? And we had to break it down to a quantitative metric, essentially, with the group that we're working on this program with. Hmm. And they're like, well, well, we can get you 70% accuracy on this thing. And I'm like, once again, we're doing to, with this data, the ultimate sanction of death on people, yeah. right? At the outcast. I would hate to go to someone's family or write a letter to someone's family and saying this person died because we were 70% sure they were a bad guy. And I'm like, you have got to crank that way up. And yeah. so we, we eventually came up with a number of what we consider to be ethically feasible and ran it by the lawyers. And then we were able to test that in the virtual machine system that we established for this thing to actually say, okay, now we can actually start actioning all these things. How, how do you even do that? I mean, if someone said to me, listen, Reed, you're an ethicist, give us a number, give us an accuracy <laughs> percent, at which point, you know, this is, is the difference between life and death. You know, if it's over X percent, they're going to get shot and they're going to likely die. If it's under that, it's not going to take the shot. Give us the number. I don't, I guess, first of all, I'd say, holy shit, I don't know. And secondly, I would say, well, it's going to depend upon, you know, it's going to be a risk versus reward situation. And so how could you even have the same number? I mean, you know, if we're talking about the the leader of a terrorist organization, maybe I'm willing to go with, I'm just going to throw out a number here, 85%, 90%. If it's, you know, a much lower, very junior person, you know, who's killed one person, you know, then I'm going to be like, I don't know, 98%. I'm just throwing out these numbers off the cuff. I have no right. idea whether they're even close to to defensible. So one question is, how would you even assign a number independently of context? And even if you do know the context, even if you know it's the context is head of a terrorist organization, how would you decide it even in those cases? What does that conversation even look like? Yeah, well, I think it looks like almost any other conversation we would have on what we call targeting boards, basically. Mm. And that's like, hey, this is the information we have. We think you as the commander who has the ability to actually put a drone or a team in this house or through the house with a bomb, we think this person is bad because of X, Y, and Z, right? Hey, what, what we saw their social media. We know through other information that they're a terrorist leader and because of cell phones or whatever, we know that they're in this house, right? Yeah. Very generally, very broadly. Could a machine do all that? Uh, I, I would make the argument they could if they had the appropriate data and the appropriate uh, parameters set up. Now, would the machine, when they're discussing this to the commander, would it be a machine doing it and saying, hey, these are all my biases that I have? And, you know, one of the things we look at from analytic tree craft standards, hey, these are my gaps. This is what I don't know about this and why it could possibly be wrong. Mm -hmm. So whenever we do big analytic reports, we have to put those in there. Because commander has to know, hey, I'm not preaching you the gospel. I'm preaching you the gospel as I understand it. Sure. So um, articulate your known unknowns. Exactly. Uh, good old Dunder Runsfeld. But in that, 
the commander, once again, ultimately has to make that decision. And if he or she has not properly articulated AI policy guidance down to subordinate units or their intelligence cell or their targeting cell or whatever, well, in the day, all that information has to go to that commander, right? Because um, he or she has not dictated, hey, if they meet this certain threshold of 85%, if this says he's a terrorist leader and you have 85% surety, this information is correct based on your lack of a black box transparency through your uh, analysis system. I don't need to be contacted. Go forth. If it's a lower level guy, okay, I need to be informed if it's an 85% and we think he's a low level guy though. Mm. And work in that policy, right? Which I don't, which doesn't exist at this point. I mean, what those things mean. There's got to be a degree of just arbitrariness to this, right? Who the hell knows? Yeah. And, and that gets into a much wider debate with military education. Is military warfare an art or is it a science? Um, to, to kind of get into a little bit, everyone wants to say that they're a Avon Clausewitz, who was a Prussian military general back in the, I believe it was the 18th century, wrote On War. And it's everyone wants to emulate him because he, he knew everything from politics all the way down and worst continuation of politics and all this stuff. And there's never school of thought, well, not everyone can do that because that's very innate, very feeling, all this stuff. Mm. Hey, we should go more to a science of this. Hey, if I have right, right. so many guys, so many things, that will outweigh any advantages the enemy has, or this will exasperate my advantages, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So how do I teach either of those things, right? So you have a little bit of art to meet that science. It's going to be impossible. And then I take it, yeah. you know, one of the relevant benchmarks is going to be how sure are people, if we're just talking about this, you know, the average or the standard or the typical Marine who's placed in that situation, who has to kill or not kill. How accurate are they? And if it turns out that they're basically a coin flip, I'm not saying they are, but suppose that the average Marine is a coin flip in their judgments as to whether or not, you know, they should, they should have shot or not, should have killed or not. Then if the AI is like 75%, that's better. That's a lot better. But then I think at this, at the same point is what is the commander's level of risk to assume in that? Right. I, I think they feel more comfortable, especially right now with humans making those decisions, even though the speed is slower because, mm. oh, oh no, I know Sergeant Smith. Sergeant Smith is a good Marine, makes good decisions. Right, right. Even though this was a bad decision, as opposed to, oh, the evil rise in the machines, they're coming to get us. This is a decision because he was going to race Skynet, basically. <laughs> okay, so it, it sounds like there's still a lot of stuff up in the air about exactly how the military should proceed with AI. So, if, you know, you were the head of the military... Or if you just had the ear of the head of the military, how would you suggest things move forward? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. If I was brought in to advise someone or someone asked my opinion, I get like you are. <laughs> no, the biggest thing I would say is, hey, the same way that we have established guidelines for use of force, for how to use artillery, how to use tanks. Okay, how do we use and when do I use and what is the use of this new weapon system, which is what it is. It is enhancing, optimizing other things for us. When can I use this? How should I use this? What is the route to acquire new versions of this? What does all of that look like? I think that doesn't exist right now. I think it's still very much in the academic and theoretical sphere right now. Hmm. There are a lot of really smart people working on those problems right now, I know. We just haven't seen it at my level yet, at the tactical level yet, at the very small scale uh, level. And will that ultimately look like Again, sort of high-level policy, then there's going to be something like mid-tier policy, and then there's education of people like you. Is that right? Definitely, yeah. I think education is going to be the big thing going forward because that will inform all that stuff. Much like ethics training is informed throughout our uh, spectrum of education in the military, 
AI needs to be brought in that same level and how do sure. we use that across the force? Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, it's really a supplement is needed to the ethics training and there needs to be, frankly, AI ethics training. Exactly, yes. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much. I mean, you know, you offer a really, really interesting perspective and I don't usually talk to Marines. So this has been super interesting for me. Thanks so much. And no worries at all. Thank you much.